Welcome to the Alcove. Tonight, our guest is Nasca Demini at Cardinal Tea Room. Bienvenue dans l'Alcove. Ce soir, on reçoit Nasca Demini au Salon de thé Cardinal. So, born in Montreal, yep. Nasca began his career as a web designer in his hometown, but always had a passion for photography and visual storytelling. In 2009, he opened his first creative studio and began focusing most of his energy on his new passion while still servicing his web clients. It was in 2013 that Nasca decided to change his career path to focus strictly on portrait and people photography. This bold move proved to be a calling. Today, he's shot high-profile people like Ghostface Killa, Mary J. Blige, Virgil Abloh, Alcove alum Justin Kingsley, Nobel laureate Malala, and NBA player Andre Iguodala. Yes. Some of Nasca's commercial projects include work for Nike, Cadillac, Veuve Clicquot, and many more. His photos can be seen on his Tumblr, Instagram page, and website, as well as in big-name media outlets like Variety, Esquire, and Hypebeast. Nasca, thanks for diving into the alcove and taking the time to chat with us tonight. Thanks for having me. So, in true alcove tradition, we will start with a speed round of questions. Yes. You answer with the first thing that comes to mind. This gives us the chance to get to know you a little bit better before we get into the deeper stuff. Describe your general aesthetic in one word. Minimalistic. The first photo you took that made you say, I'm going to do this full time. Or did you not take it yet? I probably didn't take it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good answer. I probably didn't take it yet. Uh, yeah, let's stick with that one. <laughs> <laughs> when you travel, what do you take with you? Uh, camera, notepad, iPhone, uh, laptop. All right. And a few pairs of sneakers. Very good. Yeah. Whose work has influenced you the most, whether it's a photographer or other? Um, Irving Penn as a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, French photographer by the name of Denis Rouvre as well would be my top two. And Dan Winters as well. Um, and uh, that, those are like contemporary photographers. And as far as like peers, I would say a photographer by the name of Trash Hand. Okay. Who, he does more architectural stuff, but. Uh, he was an ins inspiration for me in my taking my Instagram photography to like another level. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is one thing that you wish you knew when you started taking portraits? The cost of a portrait. You learned that the hard way, I guess. That's sort of hard way, but you know, when you start off in photography, it's all or, or any type of when you start off in photography, uh, I think uh, pricing has always been a struggle yeah. for. A lot of creatives, in anything you do creative, I think it was always hard to know what to charge. Mm -hmm. So if you knew that earlier on, you would have made a lot more money earlier than waiting till you're established to, to get what you want. Uh, subject you photographed that surprised you the most? Like a person? Like a mm -hmm. person surprised you the most? Um, Malala surprised me the most. Uh, photographing Malala was, do you want me to explain? Sure. You have to realize that Malala, she, even though she's this figure as large as in life, she's basically still a young person. Mm -hmm. She's still very shy, uh, doesn't really like large crowds. She's had a traumatic event in her life, obviously. So you realize the youthfulness in her uh, to someone that's larger than life. Generally, you would expect them to be, you know, like either cocky or boastful or, 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 but you can tell that she's, she's, she's still very you know, insecure and dealing with a lot of things that young people deal with every day. So that was a surprise for me. I didn't expect that. Must have been nice. Yeah. Uh, you're a big movie fan. Yes. What movie can you quote from start to finish? 
start to finish. Yeah. Uh, Godfather. Uh, I feel like there's a few. Yeah, there's a few, but <laughs> Godfather is definitely a movie. There's a lot of like life lessons. Not forget the the. The, the killings and the criminality of it. There's a, there's a lot. There's, it's a really heartwarming yeah, film. Yeah, there's a lot of life lessons in that movie that uh, that really speak to me and kind of like uh, make them quotables just from having something that's uh, so well written. Mm -hmm. If you could take one week off from your regular life and immerse yourself in something completely new, what would it be? Cooking. Uh, I enjoy cooking uh, as it is now, mm -hmm. and I even. I even like flirt with the idea of going to culinary school just to kind of learn the basics of, of, of cooking. So definitely cooking. The last project you worked on that was pro bono? Uh, the last project I worked on that was pro bono. Uh, I did a, for, so for Mother's Day, I had an idea two years ago to basically do free Mother's Day portraits. Uh, I feel like uh, our parents, I mean your, your parents and our parents, uh, the older generation, they don't get photographed often. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would have been a really cool project to kind of capture mothers uh, for Mother's Day, get them dolled up so they come in and get hair, makeup, nails, mas hand massage, and then get a portrait by me. And this idea came to me two years ago, and I was trying to get sponsors to make it happen. And the people I spoke to, they were like, do it in Toronto. I'm like, no, I want to do it in Montreal. It's my home base. So instead of waiting for them this year, I just did it. We just did it. So I got a team together of a makeup artist, hairstylist, we all volunteered our time, and we basically took Mother's Day's portraits, which uh, was really like heartwarming to kind of see mothers who haven't been photographed since they were like 18 or 19. You know, they're now in their 60s, coming to get their portrait taken was really like a special thing, and a lot of tears, a lot of crying happened on 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 set. So it was a beautiful thing. So that's the last thing I did pro bono, wow. or volunteered my time, I would say. Uh, what did your parents do when you were a kid? Uh, my mother was a nurse, and my father was a record store owner. He owned a vinyl shop Very cool. uh, on Peel Street. So uh, I grew up with a lot of music in my house. My dad was also a little, like a DJ as well. So uh, music was always around me, and music basically kind of shaped my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was we were fortunate enough growing up to have both of our parents in the house. Um, and I think music was like a third type of parent. Mm -hmm. A lot of rap music, which... Could be, you know, you take it how you want, but like you want to listen to certain rap songs, it kind of shapes your your ideas and narratives, which is not always positive. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I would say. Uh, you turned out okay. I did. No, I did. I did. I still love rap music, to be honest. Uh, but now, now when I hear the newer songs, I kind of sometimes I step back. I'm like, that's not right. You're kind of <laughs> like, you know, I feel like the old dude telling people like not to listen to rap music. But no, uh, definitely, uh, uh, music was a big part of my life. Someone you would never photograph. Um, I would photograph everyone, uh, even Donald Trump. Uh, I, think, I think that as a photographer, as an artist, it's my job to uh, portray people how I see them. So if, if they asked me to photograph Donald Trump, I would take that opportunity to kind of show the world how I see Donald Trump, my interpretation of him. So I would definitely photograph everyone. I feel like everyone deserves a chance to be documented. Uh, and to kind of have that into the universe and kind of put your own twist on it. Last person you texted? Uh, last person I texted was, can I check my phone? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I get a lot of texts sometimes. Let's see who the last person I text. Oh, Martin Saint-Victoire. Uh, she said she's going to be here tonight, <laughs> and she wanted to wish me uh, luck today. So That's very Martin, sweet. Martin, yeah. Uh, 
something that you and your twin brother cannot agree on? A lot of things we don't always agree on, but uh, what we cannot agree on, politics maybe? Oh. Uh, we, we, share, we share similar ideologies, but we're very different. So whenever we discuss politics, sometimes it gets heated in the office because we have different we have different worldviews. Yeah. What is something that you recently discovered and that you will tell anyone who will listen about? Lotioning your neck. <laughs> <laughs> I read the other day a tweet that said that the skin in our neck is a lot thicker than our face. So whenever you're like taking care, you should exfoliate your neck as well and put lotion on it. And that I've been telling everyone that I've met. <laughs> it's funny. No, it's true. Like. Because I never used to lotion my neck. I would just like, you know, my face, my body, and, never, yeah. and the neck is important to take care of your neck as well. If not, it would start wrinkling a lot faster and, and getting tougher. So thank you putting for that. Lotion, yes. <laughs> it's true. Ask yourself, do you lotion your neck? You may, maybe you don't. I definitely don't. Uh, a photographer you think that doesn't get the credit that he or she deserves? In Montreal? Uh, photographer by the name of Chi Modu. Uh, he is a American photographer from New Jersey. Uh, he is someone who's photographed Tupac. He's photographed Biggie. He's photographed a lot of the hip hop icons that I grew up listening to. Mm -hmm. And I think his credit was slow to come to him. I think now with social media, mm -hmm. he's gotten a new life and he's doing a lot more. But I think that this was long overdue because he was there at certain particular moments. Like, you know, if you remember the Notorious B.I.G., uh, the famous photo of him in front of the Twin Towers with that Coogee sweater on, that was his shot. Um, so I feel like, obviously people know him, but I don't think that the new generation know him as much as they should, and I think that's slowly happening. So I would say cool. he, he deserves a lot more credit to, to kind of, and also he's a black photographer, which is important, uh, just because some of you may not know this, but uh, a, a working black photographer is kind of a rarity. We will get in, into in this that. space, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Uh, two last ones. What do you think creates a more honest picture, black and white or color? I would say color. Uh, black and white always has like a melancholic look to it, mm. uh, but if you want to be honest, color is kind of like, see vif. It's every, you see everything. You see every blemish, every detail. There's no hidden, uh, you know nothing in the darkness or the shadows. So I would say color kind of gives, if you want to talk reality, yeah. we see in color. Most of us who have the, 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 the ability to see or are fortunate enough to see, we see in color if we're not colorblind and stuff like that. So I say color would be uh, more common. honest, yeah. The last project you said no to. The last project I said no to uh, was an artist who wanted me to do some work for his new project and we couldn't, uh, agree on budget, so I declined. Very good. Yeah. You're at a point where you can say no. Yeah, I think it's important. Even if even if you even if you need the money, I think saying no gives you more power than saying yes. Mm. We often say yes to everything because we're just starting out and we want to make it. But if you have the power to say no and walk away from deals, either deals that are not for you or deals that don't meet your standard, you would you would feel more empowered with that, and and you may starve for the next month to kind of make ends meet, but it would put you in a position that the next opportunity that comes to you that the universe blesses you with would definitely be more fruitful for you because you know, you're, not, you're discerning it in your choices and just instead of saying yes to everything that comes your way. I think it's an important lesson to, to be able to say no early on in your career and later on in your career. Very cool. All right, let's jump in. Let's do it. So this is kind of a three-parter. Okay. We're gonna do the first part about the person. Yep. 
then about your craft, and then about the legacy. Sure. <coughs> so, let's talk about you. Yes. You grew up in Montreal. Yes. In Ville La Salle. Ville La Salle. Tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like. Uh, we grew up, my, so for those who don't know, I have a twin brother. I have two other brothers, but I have a twin brother. So uh, when four we Four boys? Yeah, four boys. Uh, when we grew up... Praise your mom, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, twins on your first shot, it's a lot of work. Uh, no, it is. It's a lot of work. Uh, but she did it again and again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so growing up, we grew up kind of, we grew up poor. Uh, we grew up in what people would call the projects uh, or like, I guess, government housing. And childhood was fun. You know, you're just, you know, in, 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 in your neighborhood just trying to make friends, trying to, to, to play around and do what kids do. And you really kind of get a sense of the street. And I feel like being street smart in this day and age where everyone's locked into a, a, a computer or, or, or a phone, it's, it's valuable things that kids don't get anymore. And I don't mean street in a negative way. I just mean just like kind of tumbling outside, playing outside, and having fun. And having a brother that kind of looks like, that looks like you, not kind of, that looks like you, uh, you know, allows you to always be two in these circumstances. So we're kind of like each other's like conscious. So if something were to like, go wrong or whatever, we can always say, hey, that's not cool, or vice versa. So it was, it was, it was really cool. Uh, we, had, we had a lot of friends. I think being twins, uh, we were very popular growing up because there was, no, there was another set of twins in our neighborhood. Long story short, but we grew up with these other twins. And one day, uh, his name was Larry, and I forget what his brother's name was. And one day, I see him, and I'm like, hey, where's your twin brother? He's like, what twin brother? I don't have a twin. I don't know. I think something must have happened to him because he denied the existence of this twin, and I have never seen him since. So yeah, that was weird. But anyways, that's really dark. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to go dark, but but uh, and yeah. And then he died. Yeah. The end. But I don't know what happened to him. That he would deny. Like he started gaslighting me, saying that we. Ne I never had a twin, yeah. and I'm like, I remember playing with you guys. We were twins. We would both have strollers, and but anyway. Uh, childhood was cool. Yeah, yeah. But childhood was cool. Um, we went to French school. Mm-hmm which was, at the time, we hated it because all my friends went to English school. Oh. But we realized living in Quebec, La Loisanne, all that stuff, when it came time to get jobs, we were able to get jobs because we actually spoke French. My friends who didn't speak uh, you know, French either you know, did what they had to do to survive and vice versa. So I'm really fortunate that we grew up in, in, in a household where my parents forced us at the time to go to French school. Uh, elementary and high school, and uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a great uh, childhood full of like you know fun, joy, and even though we were poor or living b below the, the the economic means to survive, you know we 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 made the best of it, and we learned to share, and we learned to really, you know, take care of one another. Hmm. And then, did you go to college? Yes, went to college, uh, and college was also a fun experience as well too. Uh, just because, I mean, college wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. We went to Champlain College, and my, my vision of college growing up was like dorm rooms and all this extra stuff, watching American TV, and then you yeah, get there, the and you're American like, college. and if you guys know Champlain College, it's like a small town college, so everyone knew each other. It was kind of like, it wasn't anything special. It was kind of like everyone was from high, everyone from high school mm. knew each other, so there was no like, I don't know, I was like an outsider in this college, so it was kind of like, a uh, place where I didn't feel I was living my best potential when you look at what happens on TV. But uh, yeah, it was a cool experience. 
So you mentioned your brother, obviously. Uh, yes. You guys are brothers, twins. You're also business partners now. Yes. Um, what role does that relationship play? I mean, aside from the obvious, but what role does it play in your life today? Um, and how do you think it's contributed to your growth as a person? I think the role that it plays to work with your brother, work with family. I work with actually two of my brothers because my younger brother, he's now at Concordia studying, uh, he's doing a, fine, a bachelor's in uh, photography. Wow. So he assists me in a lot of my, lot of my gigs. Um, so it's like a family business at this point. And it just means that you're getting an honest partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, friends uh, or acquaintances might not really tell you the real. Uh, they may try to backstab you in businesses, whereas when you work with your family, even though families sometimes have the dynamic where they don't get along and they clash, I think having uh, like-minded people in the same industry as you kind of strengthens that bond and, and, and helps you make better decisions and, and look out for one another as well, kind of like we did when we were kids. Well, especially as an entrepreneur, it's, it's hard to do it on your own, so to have... No, for sure. And we have, we have uh, different skill sets, but we complement each other, right? Mm -hmm. So I can use him in a lot of uh, what I do, and he can use me a lot of what he does, especially since his, what he does is based a lot around you know, visuals and stuff like that. I can be the guy to take those visuals and capture him um, in those moments. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my brother is kind of, uh, he's many things, but one of the things that he would be known for that you guys would understand is he's like uh, an influencer. Uh, and not that I walk around with him every day on my camera like, let's get those shots. Uh, <laughs> He was one of the pioneering influencers in, in, uh, in this, or from the city, I would say. He's OG. Like. Yeah, he's like, yeah, one of the original influencers. Uh, and his brand was always about, he cannot speak about it unless he's lived it. So he would never tell you something is great, cool, or amazing unless he was actually experiencing it, living it. So if you want him to tell you that uh, a certain car is cool, you would have to like give him the car or drive the car. If you want him to say that pizza in Italy is amazing, he would have to be flown to Italy, right? So, and then I would get to tag along for those trips. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal, <laughs> right. So I'll be like, hey, you need someone to capture you eating pizza? That's me. <laughs> uh, so he did that you know, earlier on in, in his influencer blogger career. And uh, that's how I served purpose in what he was doing. And because I have a, a background in web design and stuff like that, I helped him do a lot of back-end stuff and code okay. websites when he was starting out and stuff like that, too. So you had mentioned to me, obviously, he was very much at the forefront. You were yeah. more of a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. Yeah. You were happy in that position. But then something happened where you ended up becoming more visible in this whole experience. Yeah, so um, I'm kind of an introvert in the sense where I'm an artist. I'm a true artist, I guess, if that's what you want to say, where I didn't really like the spotlight or like to be doing this, uh, doing interviews. This is fun, guys. I love you guys are here. Sorry. <laughs> but what I'm saying is it wasn't my thing to be interviewed and do stuff like this. Uh, and I kind of like played the back to what he was doing. Uh, I'm not saying that he likes the attention, but he was always that guy. Since he was we were, more comfortable with it. Since we were kids, he was always into fashion and into dressing and always into, like, I need this sweater. I need those pair of pants. And he would make my poor mom try to get it for him. And I was kind of like, he's like, you want one too? I'm like, no, I'm good. I didn't really want you know, what he had. And our father kind of raised us to have our own personalities. Uh, my mom went to dress us alike all the time. And my, and my dad would be like, no, dress them separately so you have mm -hmm. to build your own personalities, which is a tip if ever you have twins. <laughs> let them grow into themselves, uh, That's great. which was really interesting. So I kind of like saw that he was always into fashion, into like being you know, dressed and being that guy. Mm -hmm. And I, I really didn't kind of care for that. So what changes when Instagram came about and uh, you, know, you start posting pictures and then 
my brother would post pictures, and then sometimes he'd put a picture of both of us together, and people would be like, yo, who's that guy who looks just like you? <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, that's my twin. You have a twin? I know you had a twin. What does he do? He's a photographer. Oh, OK, cool. Bring him, bring him with you on a trip so we could take pictures. And it was, was funny. Was he cool with that? Because he was used to being the only one at first, um, right? Yes, he was cool with it. He would always pitch me. He would, my brother would be like, he would be my salesperson. He would mm -hmm. always tell people about me and like, my brother. And it's great when you have a twin that can vouch for you so you don't have to sell yourself, so you look less full of yourself. Someone else is doing it for you, saying, hey, he's amazing. Uh, but what that ended up happening, yeah, but what, what ended up happening was that people thought we came for a two for one. So they would be like, oh, hey, Marcus, we want you to come on this trip, or we're going to pay you for this project. Bring your brother. He can take a couple pictures. But they wouldn't involve pay, right? So you'd be like, he would have to be like, listen, if you want my brother, you have to pay him too. So they always thought we were a package deal. So for a long time, we'd like separate saying, OK, I can come, but it's going to cost you as well. Like You just can't get us two for the price of one, like uh, buy one, get one. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, what changed was Instagram gave uh, myself and my work a lot more visibility, mm -hmm. uh, and that came with me having. You, you got put on the, the feature. Yeah, so Instagram uh, had featured me. So back in the day, Instagram used to back in the day it wasn't that long. I mean, it seems like a long time now, but back in the day, Instagram used to feature photographers or artists that they liked, and they would be like, "You're a recommended user." So every time you sign up to Instagram, they would say, "You must follow this person." So that gets you a lot of followers, uh, and it kind of forced you to kind of be a brand, so mm -hmm. to speak. So you started becoming more aware of what you were posting and how you were posting it because people started noticing it. And based on my affiliation with my brother, we always stressed the importance of having a clean social media presence. We kind of saw that beforehand. Like, Define clean. Uh, just being aware of your, 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 your social media footprint. Like, no cursing online, uh, no derogatory memes, or things like that that would kind of insult someone. It may be funny to some people, but may be insulted to other people. Mm -hmm. So always being aware of what you post. So since we maintain that integrity, and by affiliation to my brother, I maintain it as well too, people felt that I was a brand they can also trust. Okay. So you mentioned something to me which I thought was super interesting, and you said, I don't talk about age because I think it's a bad barometer. Right. Why is that? Is it because you find that you're referencing the fact that it's not so much about the time, but more so the quality of the years. What is it about the age thing that? I, I feel a lot of people use age to kind of place themselves next to you as far as like, oh, if you're 25 and I'm 22, I know what I'm going to be when, when I get to your age. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's a negative, it's a counterproductive way to judge yourself because your trajectory can never be mine, right? If I went to Harvard Business School and became, you know, the smartest guy in, in, in the room, mm -hmm. you can never, you, not say you can never do that, but if you haven't done that yet, my, age doesn't matter, right? right. So, so I feel people use it as a tool like, oh, okay, if you're 30 and you're making 30 grand a year, when I'm 30, she's making the same, and it's not true. Everyone has their own trajectory. So I think people always want to, the first thing out of their, their, their conversation is like, how, how old are you? And they want to compare you. They want to put you in a box. Put you yeah. in a box to kind of compare you. And I always say, like, you know, I'm young enough to still be curious and old enough to know better. So that kind of puts me in the perfect age range to kind of do what I do and survive without having to, to put Talk myself in a it. box. Yeah. That's great. Uh, what are some of the rituals that you have to keep you sane? Because you're obviously dealing with a lot of the digital world and you're constantly having to produce content. Is there anything you do to keep you kind of chill and um, focused? I started meditating 
briefly. <laughs> uh, it's hard to meditate. Super hard. Uh, but a lot of friends of mine, they've started these meditation groups. And I'm a part of a few of those groups. And we just try to like refocus our energies. And also existing offline is really important. How do you do that? Do you just have like a hours where you're not using your phone or? Um, yeah, or just doing real life things like this. Like this for me right now, something like this is me existing offline mm -hmm. and it allows me to, to balance myself instead of constantly having to be you know, on your phone and posting and, 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 and trying to figure out like, what to do next digitally. So I feel like real life activations, whether it be art shows, art galleries, uh, finding inspiration in the streets, walking. Um, I drive a moped in the summer. So that allows me to like zip around the city and kind of find new spots of inspiration and, and, and things to, to kind of jog my creative juices. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's move on to your craft. Yes. So I read something where they said, ask any photographer the name of the one thing that ignited their creative fire, and they'll likely point you in the direction of their first camera. Is that true or false in your case? No, uh, I think I think for me, my I don't tell people the story, so you guys are getting like a little tidbit here. Exclusive. Uh, I think what ignited my creativity was a broken heart. Yeah. You're, a, like, you're like a songwriter. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, a broken heart is kind of what 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 forced me to hone in on my craft and distract myself from from uh, from heartbreak. Did it work? It did for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it did. Does she like? Uh, she does not. She she. I guess she could take credit for it. I mean, we're good now. <laughs> but I guess. But no. She's like, this is all because yeah, of me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was just just a way to kind of distract myself and and focus on on something that was like. And um, then you discovered there was like an actual love for the craft. Exactly, and uh, it 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 really transformed my life. Like photography has given me the opportunity to like see the world. Like I've been taking things off my bucket list, countries off my bucket list. Travel is like super important to me. And being able to see the world on someone else's dime is a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's, really, it's really special, to be, to be honest. So you've obviously taken some courses, but is it fair to say that you're pretty much self-taught? Yeah, I'm self-taught. Uh, but I don't think in today's day and age, I think, every, I mean, I, I would say that the world's our teacher, the internet's our teacher now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, even if you're looking at another photographer tell you, online how to light something, I feel like you have a teacher. You have many teachers. You have many mentors. I feel like the, the, the self-taught, I mean, unless, I mean, yes, you could do photography in school, and I guess that's when you're getting the real formative uh, teachings, but I would say I'm self-taught for sure, but with a lot of uh, reference points and a lot of, like, you know, mentors around me who have guided me along the way. So are there any amateur photographers here tonight? Super. Only two? Everyone, everyone <laughs> else is pro. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what are three things that you would tell someone starting out that you wish you had known when, when you would? Uh, one of the typical things is it's not about the gear. Yeah. Don't be caught up on the tools. Uh, f focus your eye and your imagination a lot more than worrying about the camera that you use. Don't work for free. Uh, I think people, well, it's a two-part thing, so it'll be my two. Uh, don't tell people when you started so that you don't have to work for free. Don't tell them how old you are. Don't yeah. tell them when you so, started. So what ends up happening, you know, what ends up happening in this industry is that when you tell people that you just started doing, taking photos yesterday, yeah. they then want to lowball you and not pay you at all. Like, we're going to give you exposure. No one can really verify when you first picked up your, cam your camera. Mm. So have that confidence to kind of say, 
yeah, I can do this, and I've been doing this, and don't kind of date yourself or date when you started your craft so that you're not getting, you know, not paid for doing the work that you should be getting paid for. That's really interesting. Um, you told me that, let's say out of 10 photos, you'll probably nail seven, and then there's three that are just like not worthy of your check mark. How do you know if it's, it's, it's a, a fail or it's a It's a feeling, and I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, 70% of the time I'm like always on point. What I'm saying is that every photo has a je ne sais quoi yeah. that, uh, would speak to me later on. I don't, I don't judge photos on its first take. I usually sleep on photos for like weeks or months at a time. And I go back and I revisit them. And another tip is that, I, I, that I would give is I never delete photos. So to go back to Chimodu, uh, the photographer from New Jersey, uh, he shot a lot of photos of Tupac, right? And when you think about an artist like Tupac, who's now deceased, he just put out a book recently uh, called Uncategorized. And it's a whole book of, of Tupac images. Some of them are really blurry. Mm. And because it's Tupac, it's still an iconic photo. So if you were to delete a photo that's blurry in your camera or that wasn't properly lit, you may regret that 20 years from now if that particular subject ends up being iconic. right? So I never delete photos. Just buy more hard drive space and keep accumulating, because you never know what a photo might speak to you. Mm. 20, 34 years down the line, if you took a photo of, let's say, the street and then it gets destroyed by, you know, an earthquake or aliens or whatever, and you, and you come back to it, you have a reference point to what it should look like. So I really believe in never deleting images from your camera, especially not behind your camera, because it's so small, you can't make mm -hmm. that decision. So look it on the big screen and, uh, and enjoy it. And I sleep on photos, so I may take your photo today and not look at, look at it for like another six months, and you call me and be like, where's my photo? So unless you paid me. Like, I'm not ready yet. Yeah, <laughs> unless you've paid me for a photo, uh, chances of you getting your photo right away are slimmer, hmm. because uh, I want to sit with it. Unless you have a deadline and it's client work, yeah, okay, you need it. But other than that, I prefer to simply just kind of let it marinate and simmer in its own juices, in its digital juices, and eventually go back and look at it again when it's ready. So that means you're still taking photos just for fun? Always. Every shoot or project I'm on is always for fun. Even though I'm getting paid to do it, it's for fun. If it wasn't for fun, I wouldn't be doing it. Like, yes, do I do some mundane photography sometimes that I don't want to do? Sure, it happens. You know, like commercial stuff, sometimes you're like, hey, we need to do some e-commerce you know, images. You know, so step and repeat, front, back, side. It's still fun, because I get to like, you know, discover new things about myself, or discover things about the model, or discover things about new lighting techniques, but it's always fun. Capturing and freezing moments in time about the future is what makes it fun for me. Because I don't look at photography as the instant the image is taken. It's always a 30-year game. It's a okay. long game for me. So let's talk about portraits specifically, yeah. uh, because that's really your thing. And, and obviously, building a connection or a rapport with your subject is paramount to getting the goods. Um, so let's. You know, you, you've talked about wanting to take honest pictures. What's your process? What's your MO? So let's say we've just met. Yeah. You don't know a thing about me. And you have, you know, five, ten minutes, because you've had to do this with certain right. subjects, to take a good portrait. What kind of questions do you ask? What do you, how do you lay it down so that you get the most out of your subject? So if I have time, if I do have, if I kind of just know your name, uh, first and last name, I guess I would Google you to kind of see what your face looks like. So I kind of go into a situation kind of knowing how I'm going to light you. 
some of you may not know this, but lighting differ is different from face to face. And I think a good photographer, a good portraitist would understand um, how to light certain face types. So a rounder face would be lit differently than a, a broader face and stuff like that. So I would definitely try to get to feel what you look like, which sometimes is hard because a lot of people, they do only selfies and they're like duck angles or duck faces. So, <laughs> duck so it's hard to like kind of like sometimes get a real you yeah. know, structure of their face, but I, I, would, I would do a bit of research on that. And then I would try to, when you come into my studio space where I come to you, I would kind of analyze your personality um, and kind of like take mental notes of what I've noticed about you. So let's just say you walk into my studio and you had your hand in your pocket, kind of like walking like this. I know that your hands in your pockets puts you in a comfort zone. So then I would then tell you, hey, when we go take pictures now, I know you're nervous. I would say, put your hands in your pocket. And I know that I'm bringing you back to a space okay. where you seemed comfortable when you walked in and that was your natural state. So you want so, people to feel as comfortable yeah, as Yeah, yeah. So I'll pick up a little cues, little things, little details that kind of like my mind works a bit in that way. And I would, I would, I would try to uh, implement them right away so the subject feels comfortable. So that way I'm getting a true representation of who I think they are. Uh, when you're dealing with high profile people, sometimes they come into a studio setting and uh, they have their ego. They have their, their, their whole persona on their shoulders. And your, your goal as a photographer at times is to break that unless you really want to show people just a vanilla surface of what they are, you kind of want to go deeper and find a bit of soul into, in that image. So, well, you have shot some high-profile people. I have, what, yes. What's been your experience? Uh, so, yeah, most, most high-profile people come in with a chip on your shoulder. They come in... Uh, and they've done a million shoots. Yeah, they come in a bit arrogant. They're pressed for time. They don't really want to be there. Kind of like, okay, let's... And my goal is to kind of find... Uh, that commonality to kind of show them that I'm human, you're human, let's be human together. Uh, which is not always easy. There's people who I photograph uh, who didn't want to give me a look or, or, or that, that energy that I was looking for. Mm. They kind of like, they didn't even look at me. Uh, and there's other people who were kind of like, wow, I like you, you know, based on personality, based on my smile. I think being a photographer is also having people skills and knowing how to break that mold. You have to be personable, you have to be funny, I guess it's a quality you need to have in order to be a photographer. Do you find like you have to be a chameleon to kind of make sure that they're feeling like they're in their element? I'm still myself, but I still have to draw from certain things. Mm. Not really chameleon, because that would be disingenuous, I think. I think I have to be more... Uh, adaptable. Adaptable to, to... And also read the room. Reading mm -hmm. the room is really important. Knowing if somebody's pressed for time and in a good mood, uh, you know, you have to kind of like... Make sure that you, you, you break that ice. And I, we kind of spoke about a certain situation of a, yeah. a president or a CEO of a, of a, of a particular company. Uh, I guess I can name him, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Uh, so I photographed uh, David Ben Sadoun, who is CEO. basically CEO of Aldo Group. Uh, and I know that somebody like, you know, the CEO of Aldo is busy man. So what I did was, when I met him, I went into their offices and I said, hey, David, I know your, your PR team allotted me two hours with you, but I'm going to make it happen in one hour. And just those words alone, you could see the relief He's like, oh, come over God. his face. He's like, I like you. Like, <laughs> you're going to make, like, you know, you've just now, you've showed value for my time. You understand mm -hmm. who I am as a person. And I, still, I think we may have ended up still doing a little bit over an hour because he was so enamored with our conversation. And he's a very curious man, so we spoke about cameras, and he was asking me what lens I was using. And just to show that, you know, being knowing a bit about your subject helps you 
you know, take them apart. And I think if I can, if I can go back, uh, if I can go back into school, I would, I would study psychology to kind of give me more of an edge on my subjects. Not that I want to play mind games, but just to have a better advantage on how to really work how to a navigate role. With I have it naturally. I think. I think I'm yeah. naturally I'm gifted in that sense, dealing with people. But I think having that like structure of okay, if somebody's X, Y, and Z, take them apart this way, so you have more of a of an advantage. I think that's what's very interesting is that it's really not about just the finished product no, of the photo that you're taking. It's so much more about what you're doing before and what you do after and exactly. how you navigate. And a lot of people don't understand that because some people, they look at portraiture as almost as if though you're taking a selfie, not realizing that it's not a selfie situation. It's an exchange of energy between two, two people. Mm. And I have to give you energy and you have to give me back energy. Doing a selfie by yourself, you can take a million photos and delete, delete, delete till you find the right one that, you know, your duck lips are perfect. Whereas when you're working with a subject, you have to understand that it's not a selfie. And I usually tell my subjects right off the bat, this is an exercise of trust. So yeah. they sit for me, I let them know they're in good hands, and that my job is to not compromise them in any way visually. And that kind of sets the parameters of how I deal with them going forward. And once they feel uh, that they're in a comfortable space, they allow me to do my work, and they trust me as an artist, or they trust the people that set, that set them up with me to kind of create that type of you know, magic. So it's easy to kind of talk about just the artist side of it, but at the end of the day, you're still running a business. Absolutely. And so what kind of advice can you give that applies to all, all different kinds of entrepreneurs, um, just purely from the business sense, to be able to juggle creative freedom, yeah. to also be able to sustainably grow and be financially viable? Well, uh, if you've figured it out. I, I, I'm still working at it, but what I would say is, uh, as a photographer, as a creative, uh, what's really important is to build your personal brand. Don't just be a camera operator. Be someone that people, be someone where your reputation starts superseding you so that um, you do less talking when you enter a room. And I'm not saying it's easy, but if you're able to build on that, people would, now, would not come to you with BS offers or won't play with your business because they now understand you've grown yourself to be someone that people respect and value their work. So how, work on that how first. How much of the work that you get do you think is due to the fact that you've built that personal brand? A lot of it. I think, so I don't, I have not, up until this point, and maybe it's hurting me, uh, I don't pitch mm. for work ever. Work comes to me. And 2019, no, 2018, it's been a year already. I mean, yeah. 2018, I promised to start pitching for work, and I haven't done it yet. That's not going. Um, it's not going well, because I haven't done it yet. Uh, and when I mean pitching for work, kind of like putting pr proposals together, and sending out to brands and companies saying, hey, I want to work with so-and-so and do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. This is what I charge. Work, I've been blessed that work has been coming to me up to now. So every time somebody, every time I open my email, um, there is, not every time, but there are people who are looking for my services or looking for me to capture or create with them. So um, it's based on the goodwill I've built in the industry. And I've also built that goodwill outside of Montreal. Mm -hmm. So when you're working and building your brand, whatever it is you're doing, you got to approach it with a global mindset so that you're not stuck on a hyper-local mentality because we all know Quebec, Montreal doesn't have a lot of money uh, for creative work. So it's always often hard to get paid the value of what things are actually mm -hmm. cost in a small marketplace like here. 
So if your brand is only built based on what you do in Montreal, you're only going to get Montreal clients. I've been fortunate enough to work with, you know, in Asia, work in Italy, work in the States, work in just even Toronto. And that was based on how I built my brand and built my reputation and also keeping a, a clean slate from what you post on social media. Because I always tell people also, you know, it's the brands are who are watching you every single day. The brands who are looking at you and what you do and how you post and how you interact with people and how, and how you, they perceive you to be. And that also helps in kind of the contracts that you would lock down going forward. If, they don't, if, if a brand can't stand next to you socially, they won't stand next to you, uh, you know, for the work aspect of what you're trying to do with them. So let's talk a little bit about what you do stand for. Yeah. So we've talked about personal brand. I think that's pretty clear kind of what you've been able to build. But at the base of what you're doing, something happened, I guess, a few years ago where you decided that you really wanted to change the narrative. And you said, you know, you were growing up and you had this interest in photography, but you realized that all the photographers you were looking up to were white photographers. Right. And any time that black subjects were being photographed and awards were being won, it was because they were doing what you call poverty porn. Right. And you wanted to change the narrative around that, and so you started deliberately photographing a lot of people from the same culture as you. Right. So was this always kind of your plan that I'm working towards being able to do this type of work, this is what I want to do, or did it just sort of happen, and once you realized there was a lack of that in the market, you needed to do it? I think when I entered the photography industry or space or race or sport, uh, I love it. I just want to take a second. I yeah. love that you said that because yeah. I've never heard this before. You talk about photography as a sport. Right. Explain just quickly that. Um, photography is a sport. It's, 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 it's a competitive place where we're always trying to one-up each other and kind of win trophies. So it definitely is a sport. And uh, I, I'm, I'm saying that it's a place where there's winners and there's losers. And unfortunately, uh, what I said earlier on, that being a black working photographer is kind of like we're always on the losing side of that equation, even in terms of what we get paid versus our white counterparts or what's being offered to you. This is always like a struggle in the, in the creative space. And I think when I entered the industry, uh, not knowing what was going on, when you start following conversations and start looking into, hey, uh, there's grants that are being given. Hey, there's awards being won for photography. And you start seeing what's happening. You start seeing a pattern. And you start realizing that uh, Photography is a really expensive sport to get into. In terms of when photography was founded uh, or the first picture was taken, the cost of gear was super expensive. Yeah. And based on you know, the socioeconomical uh, landscape of black people, we weren't put in positions always to be able to afford this gear. So you never had the practice runs that if your dad just happened to buy right. you know, a $9,000 Leica camera, probably just had it in his living room, and you just like, picked it up one day and went out shooting, right? So uh, when I started realizing that we were being left out of the conversation in terms of being the people behind some of these most iconic images that you see every single day, it's when I started to think my plan and who I wanted to be and that I wanted to also become the reference point 40 years from now for black and brown and people of color to look back and say, hey, here's a photographer capturing people that look like me in a certain light. Uh, now, when I looked at my, my photography book collection, yeah, a lot of them are all white photographers because we didn't have access to mm -hmm. printing our work, 
to having publishers that would publish our work. Uh, generally, if you're black and you try to tell a story about black culture, what ends up happening is that the, the photo editor would tell you, you're too close to the story. You know, you, you, you're, you're biased, right? That, you, that you, you can't be objective enough to tell a story. Let's get a white guy to come take photos. Exactly. So that's what literally happens. And you know, when you look at the award landscape, uh, so like this year, 2019, uh, or 2018, sorry, all of the top five awards that were awarded this year, uh, three of the subjects in the photo photos were black and all photographed by white photographers. So you're kind of like, why can't we get paid and awarded for f telling our own stories? And it's important for us to control our narrative, because what ends up happening is that you have in the media people that tell stories about us, and it's, always, it's most of the time you know, unfavorable to us. It, it paints us in negative lights. So I, I always said, you know what, we don't always have to be you know, the kid in Somalia with ill-fitting clothes yeah. by himself and no parents around. And we take that to say we're bringing awareness to poverty in Somalia. But what we're doing is we're giving people the, the permission to finally stare at us. Right? And it's deeper than what I'm saying is, is that now with these images of these poor black and brown children is that we're giving people, Westerners and people of high means to just pretend to, to stare at us forever now without necessarily feeling you know, that they're being rude. right? Because there's a fascination with the black skin and the black culture and what we do, but it's never highlighted. It's not always hi highlighted in a positive light. And so that's kind of twofold. You wanted to take control of that narrative yes. and start taking the photos that you wanted to take yes. of black people. Yes. But you also felt like you didn't have the opportunity, the best quality of light, so you developed presets. Yes. So talk about the Shirley card. Yeah. So in photography, real quickly, for those of you who may shoot film or know about film, uh, when Kodak started doing their film stock, they used to test it against this white woman by the name of Shirley, and they call it a Shirley card. So whenever they do like a new type of film, they would say, "How does this film, you know, look on Shirley's skin?" And what ended up happening was when chocolate companies and wood manufacturers would call Kodak and be like, hey, listen, I can't tell. I just took a photo of my chocolate, and I can't tell if it's dark chocolate or milk chocolate. You need to make some adjustments. That's when Kodak realized they have to adjust their film stock to accommodate chocolate and wood, not necessarily people. So when you would take a photo of, let's say, a, a white person with a black person in the photo, the white person would look nice and clear and gray, and the black person would just make a black dot. Right? So the industry was never geared towards you know, catering to black people and brown people and people of different shades. Right. Right? Like recently, they just put out, they just recently in the world, they just put out uh, brown colored Band-Aids. I don't know if you guys saw that. It's amazing. I haven't, I haven't gotten cut yet. But just to show that, Band-Aids have always been what you call skin tone color. But whose skin are you talking about? Right? So you have the systemic racism that happens throughout the world. And you have it happening in you know, micro industries. And photography is definitely one of them. Uh, so when we went from digital, when we went from film, sorry, to digital, you had what you call the preset market. So you know you guys are on Instagram and you have like Visco. Most of you guys probably have Visco. You put that nice cool filter on your images. Those filters kind of work like film. They don't really complement black and brown skin. So people used to say, hey, I love the way you capture black people and brown people. I love your coloring. So I decided to share my workflow which we call a preset of editing skin. And I put that in the market. And when I, the day I launched in the market, it sold really well. People were like, oh my god, this is amazing. And I'm talking black photographers also buying it too, because what's on the market doesn't exist for us. 
And then I said, how do I go a step further? And I got other photographers who I respect, who I know do great work within the industry, and also had them create presets um, within that same kind of guideline, and also collaborated with them to, to also sell your presets, to so kind of create like a, almost like a hub, so you can kind of go get presets. So if you're a photographer and you're not comfortable shooting skin tones uh, that are darker than what you're used to, these presets kind of give you like almost like a, a cheat sheet to kind of like color grading your images so that they look presentable. Because what ends up happening, the other presets, they would either make us look super ashy or gray or take the color out of her face. You guys must have seen like, you know, pictures of Beyonce on magazine covers and she looks really, she looks like a white woman. That's they crazy. they kind of because the retouch and the reason why they do that too is because it's not because it's done on purpose all the time, but what I would say is that inherent bias mm. kind of makes it if you're a retoucher and you're working a Beyonce photo, you're kind of like, oh man, she doesn't it's it's kind of dark. Let me just lighten it up. And you kind of raise the exposure to kind of like bleach out her face because that's what you're used to. And the images that are, are fed to us on a daily is always of that, you know, white is better. And we all know what happens within our own communities. You have, in black communities, you guys may not know this, but we have a bleaching problem. A lot yeah. of black people are bleaching their skin naturally because the, the colonial um, mindset is that white is better than dark. So within our community, we're bleaching and we're changing the complexion of our skin to appear better looking in photos. That applies across the board. So I'm trying to really try to take out the narrative and kind of, kind of like tone our skin uh, properly, kind of get into the richness of our skin. Uh, how, many, how many of you guys have seen the movie Moonlight here? Okay, so just to give you an example of Moonlight, right, uh, which is a great movie by Barry Jenkins. Uh, whenever I used to go on set, when I became more, more of an, less of an introvert, more of an extrovert, I had to do interviews and stuff like that. Whenever I would get on set and they would have a makeup artist, the first thing they would do is they would powder my face. And the reason why they're powdering my face is because black skin has a natural shine to it. And they would powder my face to tone down that bright, shiny of the melanin that's in my skin, right? And Barry Jenkins, a uh, brilliant director, he said that he didn't want, he wanted our skin to shine on set. So he made sure that all the makeup artists didn't powder anyone's face so that they kind of came across the camera like almost like 3D. And that's kind of like, when you understand filmmaking and color grading and all the other stuff, when you go into a set, you know that's why it's important that if you're a black woman or a black man on set, that you should hire a person who understands black skin, who understands lighting, because lighting black skin and lighting white skin is way different as well. So when you can kind of decide that I'm going to use lighting, you know, even Insecure, uh, your DP, if you guys watch the movie, the, the, the series Insecure, your DP is really good in highlighting black skin. The trick to lighting black skin for video is not to put direct light on us, it's to bounce the light. So you kind of keep those tones nice and, and crispy and beautiful and dark. So little tricks that you learn. So it's important too that when you get on set or you, you're about to work, if you see yourself as a person not of color, but you want to be an ally, you know, don't be shy to ask the creative director or whoever's on set saying, listen, I don't think we have the right person to do this person's hair or the right person to do this person's yeah. makeup or, you know what I mean? Like, get people on set who are more representative of the world we live in to kind of make sure you have the best work going forward. So you created, obviously, these solutions to try to change that, that narrative. Right. Do you find, like, you've seen a shift since these came out? Do you feel like um, there's a movement? There's, I, think there's, I think more and more there's a movement happening. Um, I don't think I've sold enough presets to say that I've made an impact yet, but I think putting the idea into the world mm. and having others understand that there's a need for this 
and I'm talking black and white photographers alike. Like I've, I've seen sales from black photographers and white photographers. It doesn't mean that because you're black, you automatically know how to light black skin. Uh, it just means that you have a cultural connection to your subject, right? Okay. So you still need to learn the tricks and how to light and grade it. So I feel like slowly but surely, I think maybe in the next five years, it would become a thing where other preset companies as well start including in their bundles, you know, uh, presets dedicated to people They've of color. they become more mainstream. Exactly, yeah. We don't have much time left. I do want to ask you about your book. Yeah. What's the deal? Um, it's not ready yet. <laughs> the end. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on my first uh, official uh, book of portraits that I've taken over uh, maybe the last five years. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so I'm still in the process of like curating, which is the hardest part for me is to kind of like find the images that I want to use for this particular book, and I'm still finding the people that I want to photograph for it. So when it does come out, you guys will be the first to know. I'll give an exclusive to Alcove to announce it on their, <laughs> on their social. Yeah, for sure. This year, next year? Uh, I was hoping for 2019, but uh, I've been getting a lot of uh, contracts, uh, so I've been behind on working on that. I've been working a lot lately. So it's, it's we're, we'll see, maybe right before 2020. But there's only six months left. This year's been, have you guys noticed how fast this year's been flying? So yeah, maybe 2020 to be on the safe side. Well, we very much are looking forward to it, and I can Thank tell you. you, obviously, a lot of your photos are incredible. But Thank you. The one that really caught my eye was Marcus. Okay. The last one that you shot. It is the richest, most gorgeous photo. Marcus Samuelson, the chef, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amazing work. Thank you. I don't know if you guys have been to uh, Marcus's restaurant in, in Montreal. He opened a restaurant uh, with uh, the Four, four Seasons. seasons. Uh, and uh, we've become friends since, uh, since he's come, come to Montreal. And he came by my studio, and we had a chance to kind of like create. We, I had 20 minutes with him uh, to really create like a, a meaningful portrait of him, and that had turned into a, a, a text friendship. So uh, we, we text each other uh, quite often, and whenever he's in town, we, we go grab drinks, and uh, we get to hang out. Uh, but he's a really uh, rich mm. guy, and I don't mean monetarily, I mean in personality <laughs> and spir spirituality. Yeah, yeah. So I really wanted to like, capture that in, in the photo. So I was really like, keen on making sure that you see every pore uh, on his face, and uh, and kind of see his like his his his. You have to be a serious man to be a good cook, I believe. And I feel like I want to capture that bit of seriousness, even though he's a fun, jovial guy. I want to capture like that he's about his business. So that's why that portrait um, turned out the way it did. And wow. detail was super paramount for me to make sure that. It, it, it hops out on the screen when you look at it on my website. On Instagram, you don't see it as much, but if you go to my website, you would see that he really pops out on the screen. Well, it's been a pleasure looking at your work and talking to you, and thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me, tonight. for sure. Thank you. Thank you.